0: Good morning. There's lots to chew on there, isn't there? Um, Some bits may have left us with questions. Um, The sheer size of it may have left us with the question of how long is this going to be? Let me pray for God's help as we begin. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is food for our souls. And we pray you'd help me to be faithful and all of us to have open ears and hearts as we look at it now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me say how glad I am to be here at Redeemer. It's lovely to see some familiar faces, old friends, and some new faces, people I'm meeting for the first time today. That's exactly the way it should be in a church. And if you don't know me, my name's Roger. I'm one of the ministers at Chalmers Church, the kind of sister church of here. Um, and I'm subbing in because Sam, your minister, is um, speaking on our student weekend away, for which we're very grateful. So I'm sorry you have to put up with me, but we're really glad that he's serving our students Thinking of Sam on that weekend away, reminded me of something I heard at a student weekend. Uh, I think it was um, uh, 19 years ago. That ages me. I've never forgotten it since, though. And it was this. We were listening to some talks from Joel on a Christian's attitude to suffering. Really bad, devastating suffering. And to be honest, at the time, as a kind of young, healthy undergraduate from a comfortable background and a loving family... I sat there in this talk about suffering thinking, I hope it never happens to me. And then the speaker said, and this is what I remember, if you haven't yet seriously suffered, you just haven't lived long enough. Striking, isn't it? If you haven't seriously suffered yet, you just haven't lived long enough. That struck me because even at the time, even though I didn't want to believe that was true, I kind of knew it was. I mean, Ecclesiastes, I guess, has been showing you that, amongst other things. This is a world that's fallen. It's groaning. It's in bondage to decay, in the words of Romans 8. And actually, in the years since that statement, again and again, it's been proven right. We as a family had five years of grieving what we thought was permanent childlessness. We've been told that. We have nine years and counting of my wife, Jessie, having chronic fatigue. And that's not some rare exception, We've just been away on half-term with some friends and family, and we were both struck by, in the conversations, how much serious suffering is going on in our friends or their friends. You only have to live long enough to experience real suffering. Actually, today, we're not thinking about suffering in general. We're thinking about a particular kind of suffering which Christians face more of this is bad news, but this is the pain of being disliked unfairly. That's what Psalm 69 is about, being disliked or opposed unfairly. That's one of the sobering things to realize about being a Christian or becoming a Christian, if you're thinking about that. Not everyone likes what Jesus says, and therefore not everyone likes what Christians stand for there's this great moment in Acts when the apostles are doing a kind of regional tour of church plants. They're the guest speakers like me today. What's their message? Acts 14, live your best life now. No, the message was, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Or in 2 Timothy, when Paul's passing on the gospel to Timothy, this amazing message of eternal life, he adds... All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. Not some Christians will find it hard, but all Christians, all believers, will be persecuted. That is to say, if, if you're being godly, if you're serving God, if you're zealous for his glory, if you're publicly known as a Christian, if you're speaking truth in love, if you're sharing the good news of Jesus, you only have to live long enough. And then at some point, persecution comes. And that kind of opposition or being disliked for serving God is what Psalm 69 is all about. This is in its starkest colors, someone who's being hated unfairly as a servant of God. Just look, if you've got a Bible with me, with you, and um, look with me and it will help you having a Bible given there's so many verses. Um, verse four, uh, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Or verse 9, zeal for your house has consumed me, so this person's keen, but the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So here's someone who's seeking to live for God and serve God, keen for God's glory, and being unfairly hated for it. They hated me without cause. I have to say, of the various forms of suffering I've experienced since that student weekend away when I was warned, I've actually personally found this variety one of the most painful. Not because I've had loads of it, or particularly extreme examples of it. I'm not going to exaggerate my experience. I suspect there's probably people in this room who've suffered more than me in this area, and definitely Christians around the world who've experienced far worse than me, or perhaps than us, taking flack for the good news of Jesus. So for example, sometimes people become Christians from other religious or cultural backgrounds, where their family then ostracize them totally, cut them off from their community. Some have their livelihoods threatened, some have their lives threatened. Chalmers experienced a bit of this, it was before my time, but reputations can be kind of publicly smeared in newspapers. Kate Forbes might be about to experience this with the SNP leadership race, like Tim Farron was down south with the Lib Dems, as Christian beliefs get caricatured and kind of shouted down in public. But for me, I can honestly say two of the most painful situations in pastoral ministry have been when someone took real offense at me, when, to the best of my knowledge and conscience, I was just trying to say what God says as lovingly as I could. Some of us may have had individual situations like that where we've maybe shared the gospel in love with someone and they've given us the cold shoulder since, or they've made life hard for us at work. Or perhaps where we've challenged another Christian on an area of sin and they've taken offense at that and then take it out on us. Some of us will have extended family who give us a hard time for our beliefs. Some of us know that feeling acutely Actually, even if that's not you, all of us know the feeling of the kind of Bible-believing Christianity just being mocked more widely in our culture, in the kind of public sphere. It's just ridiculed. Crazy that anyone would think that. That's going on at the moment in some of the debates in the major denominations in the UK. Now, we need to realize sometimes criticism against us is justified. It's good to have the humility to listen and listen carefully when opposition or complaint comes. As Christians, we should be the first to admit we don't get it all right. But Psalm 69 is talking about the situation when someone is genuinely doing the right thing, the godly thing, and faces stick for it. They hate me without cause. If you haven't experienced that yet, you just haven't lived long enough. So it's a great psalm to turn to, and it will take us to the very depths of that feeling. Just look how painful things sound in verse one. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there's no foothold. I've come into deep waters, the flood sweeps over me. It's a horrible image, isn't it? Is there anything worse than drowning alive? he's desperately trying to get his kind of neck above the waters. That's how he feels. Or he's sinking in quickstand and there's nothing to push against. That's how he feels. He's utterly overwhelmed. The flood sweeps over me. That's the feeling. And he started to get weary because he's prayed so hard for so long. There's now nothing left. Verse three. I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. I wonder if anyone here has prayed for help so desperately it left you exhausted. That's how painful it is for this speaker. At which point it is worth pausing and asking who is the speaker here? Like who are we listening to? And if you look right at the start of the psalm in those little capital letters, you get the heading of David. You get the tune as well, but we don't know about that. But the the heading of David tells you it's King David speaking. God's chosen king is speaking here. But the reality is King David is just a shadow in the Bible preparing the way for God's true promised king, Jesus, to arrive. And so I've put a picture up there. Those three crosses, that's not the three crosses where Jesus died. It's Jesus's cross in the middle. And before it, in time... Was the experience of David, which kind of pointed forward to Jesus. And then we'll get to the third cross in a moment. Does so that make sense? So King David's experience is preparing the ground for King Jesus' experience later on. And actually, loads of the verses of Psalm 69 are quoted in the New Testament. You may have heard a few bits you think, oh, hang on, I recognize this. I've heard that before as we went through. And if you've got your eyes down, I'll just scan through a few of them. So, verse 9 zeal for your house has consumed me. Uh, John quotes that when Jesus clears the temple. Do you remember? He gets rid of all the money changers, and that led to him being hated. Uh, The second half of verse 9 gets quoted in Romans 15. Uh, Verse 21, they gave me, um, for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. That's picked up in John 19, when Jesus is drowning in pain on the cross, being mocked, And Jesus says on the cross, I thirst. And we're told that was to deliberately fulfill scripture. Which bit of scripture? This psalm. Jesus had this psalm in his mind, as well as Psalm 22, which he quotes. This psalm was in his mind as he was on the cross. Verse 25 is picked up when um, Peter's working out what to do after Judas uh, has betrayed Jesus. But most striking of all the bits that are quoted was the bit in verse 4. Verse 4, the second line, those who hate me without cause. The reason we read John 15 as our first reading was that was Jesus teaching his disciples from Psalm 69. And Jesus said this. You don't need to turn there uh, unless you want to. If the world hates you, Know that it's hated me before it hated you. Skipping on, remember the word I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. For the word that's written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Psalm 69. So who's singing the psalm? Who's praying the psalm? Well, originally King David, yep, in history. But his experience prepared the way for the bigger, better king, Jesus Christ, the the righteous, suffering king. And then Jesus says, my experience sets the pattern for you. Does that make sense? This is what the cross felt like, and you're going to live a cross-shaped life as my followers. Which is why some of this psalm will resonate if you've been through this experience of being unfairly disliked as a Christian. I hope you're still with me. Um, Our plan this morning, we're going to work through the psalm just thinking about the kings, so King David and King Jesus, and then at the end I'm going to draw some conclusions of why it's relevant to us. So please stick with me, Uh, I really hope you're still with me by the end because it is hugely relevant, um, but it's going to take us a while to get there. Um, okay, that's who's speaking. Uh, one other introductory thing just to clear up. And um, what's the kind of shape of the psalm? It's so big, we kind of need to get our bearings. Um, uh, I appreciate you won't, see all, you won't be able to see all the details of that. Don't worry. Basically, the thing to realize is it's two times through uh, save me from suffering cycle. So twice, we go through save me. I'm drowning. Twice through that. And then right at the end, verses 30 to 36, there's a little confident conclusion, confident corporate conclusion. I'll just show you the basics of that. So look at verse one. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I'm sinking in deep mire, the flood sweeping over me. That's verse one. Then if you look to verse 14, you get exactly the same stuff, the same prayer. As for me, verse 13, I'll start. As for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, and accept all time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love. Answer me, Oh, sorry, I'm on the wrong verse. Verse 14, sorry. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Does that make sense? So verse one, save me, I'm drowning. Verse 14, save me, I'm drowning. That starts the two halves. And then the ends of those two halves are similar. So verse 13, the one I read previously, verse 13, ending the first half, my prayers to you, O Lord, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. And then verse 29, the end of the second cycle, let your salvation, O God, set me on high. Does that make sense? So at the most basic level, the story of the psalm is God's king, is as deep as you can be in suffering, he's drowning in it up to his neck, and he's praying till his voice is hoarse, save me, God. Two times through that cycle. And then right at the end, this conclusion verses 30 to 36, which is a real gear change. Suddenly, it's all hope and positivity, like verse 32, if you just have a look at that. Verse 32, when the humble see the rescue of this king, you who seek God, let your hearts revive. Verse 33, for the Lord hears the needy. Verse 35, God will save Zion. That sense? That's the shape of it. Two times through, this kind of save me from suffering cycle, And then at the end, this really confident corporate conclusion. That will be relevant, knowing that information as we go through. I promise I'll show you how as we go. Okay, let's work our way through then. We're going to go through it in three steps, uh, thinking about the king's experience before we come back to consider the application for us. So firstly then, the king drowning in unfair suffering prays, save me. We've thought about that imagery of drowning It is a desperate picture, a distressing picture, if you think about it. But in verses 4 to 5, the imagery is kind of stripped away to tell us what's really going on. Verse 4, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. This king is hated without cause. Not by one or two folk over 15 years like me but a crowd, too many to count, more than hairs on the head. That may be exaggeration language for David, but it's not for Jesus. As the Passover crowds cried, crucify him for no good reason. And his opposition was backed by real power. There was the cultural strength of the Jewish authorities and the military strength of Rome. As this says, mighty are those who would destroy me. And they were all complicit in false allegations, maligning the innocent Jesus Christ. They attack me with lies. It's the suffering of unjust opposition. It fits Jesus so well, you might well be puzzled by verse 5. If this is Jesus speaking, how can he say, Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I've done are not hidden from you. Because wasn't Jesus completely sinless? Yes, he was. Um, So what do we do with this? Some some people think, well, maybe he's just being ironic. Like, come on, you know I've done nothing wrong here. Or others suggest, well, maybe this is Jesus kind of taking our sins on his shoulders and talking like that. But that kind of fancy theological footwork, it's really not necessary because this is David speaking in the first instance, remember, setting up the pattern for Jesus. And like every type or shadow in the Old Testament... Every picture, like an animal sacrifice or a prophet or a priest or a king, it points to bits of Jesus' role without being the full package. So David here is acknowledging, look, I'm a sinner. But in this situation, and this is the key point, in this situation, he's suffering unjustly. It's unwarranted. They hated me without cause. And how much more the Lord Jesus, who knew no sin, who never did anything wrong. Actually, verse 9 to 12, confirm this is a godly man suffering unfair opposition. Verse 9, zeal for your house has consumed me. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Seems in this little bit like David is mourning, maybe mourning the sin of the nation, but others are ridiculing him and mocking him. That is, he's serving God wholeheartedly, and they, well, it's just the sound of jeers and mockery he hears. How much more Jesus, again, who as God's servant went obediently to the cross while being jeered at by Roman soldiers. He carried the cross through the streets to the sound of public humiliation. Even on the cross, he was mocked by passers-by. They said things like, Call him God's promised king. He can't even save himself. As verse 12 puts it here, I'm the talk of those who sit in the gate and the drunkards make songs about me. So God's king is praying, save me from this unjust opposition. Just looking across to the second cycle David's opponents aren't just unjust, they're also merciless. Just look at verses 19 to 21. 19 to 21. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My, my foes are all known to you. Listen to this. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, there was none. For comforters, I found none. They gave me poison for food and my thirst. They gave me sour wine to drink. I wonder if we ever stop and think what it took Jesus, the glorious Son of God, not just to bear the physical pain of a crucifixion, not just to bear God's judicial indignation at sin and evil, but also this thing to bear as a real human being with real human emotions, social shame. Hatred even. Reproaches have broken my heart. I'm in despair. I look for pity. There was none. Striking as Jesus headed to the cross, even his closest friends didn't stick with him at the darkest moment. I looked for comforters. I found none. That's our first point. The king is drowning in unfair suffering and praying, save me. Secondly, though, step two of the psalm, the king realizes more is at stake. So he's praying, save me. And this this really surprised me when I started reading Psalm 69 carefully. You would expect someone who's going through all of that to only have eyes for themselves. Like, save me, help me. This isn't fair on me. But in verse six, it's clear he knows more is at stake in what happens to him. Verse six, let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord, my God, Lord of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. This is really striking. Part of the reason the king wants his prayer to be answered, wants to be rescued, is because of what it will say to other believers if he's just left in the hole, in agony, unanswered, unrescued. I think there's a bigger picture going on here. This big book of Psalms began with Psalm 1 saying, listening to God is the way to flourish. Psalm 2 said, God's chosen his king and anyone who opposes him will be held to account. And here you get God's king listening to God and suffering horrendously. And you get loads of opponents attacking the king And seeming to get away with it, scoffing at him. And so King David and later King Jesus realise there's a bigger thing at stake here. Is God going to keep his promises? What are Christians going to think if the king is left in the hole? That's the point. And actually, I think that's why in the second cycle, if you jump across to verses 22 to 28, I think that's why he's praying that judgment should fall on these merciless opponents. Now, these verses, we may, as we heard it read, have thought, oh dear, what are we going to do with that? These are verses, and there are a few of them in the Psalms, where we're not quite sure what to do with them, as judgment is kind of cooled down on opponents. Now, it's worth saying, David is praying here, not taking matters into his own hands. He's trusting them to God's judgment, But it's still a bit confusing because didn't Jesus teach us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? Didn't Jesus model that on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So what's going on? Well, it's important to realize it's not that Jesus and his apostles rejected this idea that there will be a final judgment, a reckoning on all the enemies of God's king. They talk about that repeatedly, actually. But before that happens, and this is the amazing thing about the cross of Jesus before that judgment comes, there is a time, an opportunity time for salvation. I mentioned that when Jesus on the cross said, I thirst. He was doing it to fulfill verse 21 of Psalm 69. This was to fulfill scripture, says John's gospel. But what's really striking is the prayer he then prays on the cross is not let them get what's coming to them. But extraordinary, the prayer Jesus prays first, the prayer on the cross is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing that is to say, the pattern that Jesus sets for his followers, even when we're being attacked unfairly, even when you're at school and given a hard time for being a Christian, the pattern is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Because in the end, God's judgment will fall. One final thing to notice on this second point, the king realizing more is at stake. Just notice how the cycles end. Um, So the end of the first cycle, um, you get mentioned in verse 13 of uh, God's, God's saving faithfulness. Verse 13, as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. It comes up again, verse 16. Answer me, for your steadfast love is good. And then at the end of the second cycle, verse 29, let your salvation, O God, set me on high. That is, King David keeps appealing to that song we sang earlier Faithful one, faithful one, so unchanging. Come on, God, you've promised your king. Will be set in place on Zion, God's holy hill. You've promised that you'll be with your people. You've promised that people who listen to you don't end up in the hole, not ultimately. Now show your saving faithfulness. Prove that you can be trusted. See, do you see what's at stake? It's much bigger actually than just will David get out of this circumstance. What is at stake is can God be trusted? If his king is left in the hole, if it seems like everyone who scoffed at the king wins, well, then how can you trust God for anything else? That's what's at stake in the massive miscarriage of justice that's going on in Psalm 69. And I think that explains why the conclusion is such a, a kind of gear shift from verses 30 to 36. Suddenly we, we shift from crisis to kind of confidence and this corporate hope. I think the king has had his answer. Verse 30, 31, he's now praising and thanking God. It seems like the salvation has come through. But the striking thing about the conclusion is it's, it's corporate. Everyone can rejoice that the king has been saved. Just let's look at verse 32 again. Verse 32, when the humble see it, that is the salvation of the king, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive, for the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Or verse 35, for God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. Striking, some of that language picks up later crises for God's people like being prisoners in the exile or needing to build up the cities of Judah after the kingdom has split. Long after David, some of these things come true. But the point is, the testimony of the king who cried out from the very depths of suffering and was lifted up, that gives hope for all of God's people that in the end, God will deliver one day he will take them home, one day he will build them up, one day he will remove the insults and the reproach and the opposition from around them. See, this is the corporate conclusion, the confident corporate conclusion, that the rescue of the king demonstrates all of God's people will be saved in the end. And of course, like I keep saying this morning, how much more with Jesus? Jesus who when he said, I thirst with Psalm 69 in his mind, or my father, why have you forsaken me with Psalm 22 in his mind on the cross? He knew how those Psalms ended. He knew it wasn't the end of the story, his terrible suffering and humiliation there. He knew Easter Sunday was coming. I think sometimes we, we don't quite know what what kind of, the significance of the resurrection and the ascension where Jesus goes to the right hand of God the Father. We sometimes don't quite know why that's such a big deal. Like, I know he had to die on the cross to pay for my sin, and then he came alive, and that was nice. But the thing is, Jesus being raised and exalted is the proof that those who trust in God are ultimately vindicated, that however unjust the treatment along the way, God knows and sees and answers this kind of prayer. Save me. We're drowning here. We're so opposed. So many voices against us. The King's experience proves it for the people. Jesus, raised from the dead, seated at God's right hand, proves it for Christians. Okay, that's the psalm. Three steps. The king, drowning in suffering, prays, save me. He prays it because he realizes more is at stake, not just his own future, but actually God's reputation is at stake. And so when his rescue comes, it demonstrates to all of God's people that God delivers in the end, we will be saved. Now, for our last five minutes, just a few brief applications for us. I hope already you're encouraged by that. I hope you are. But let me spell out some of the reasons why this is um, so helpful for us. Um, firstly, there are going to be three of them. Um, firstly, most basically, I hope you are kind of blown away by the way the Old Testament prepares the ground for the cross of Jesus Christ the parallels here, they're not occasional, they're not speculative, they're multiple and they're clear. I think this really matters for us, because it would be easy to wish that God's reign did not come through the cross of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, I find it both intellectually and emotionally hard to get my head around, the fact that a weak-looking pathetic looking suffering Messiah on a cross is the only way to save humanity and the most important event in human history. To be honest, if there was a real gospel that didn't have the cross in it, I'd be all over it. Why? Because that's the point of offence often, isn't it? To say not just God loves us and wants to be in relationship with us, but that our sin against him is an offence to him. So offensive that the king had to die on the cross in our place. Well, that's often the point where the opposition comes. Paul said, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. That was true in multicultural Corinth. It's true in multicultural Collington. And yet again and again, the Old Testament prepares the ground for the cross. It prepares the ground saying, God's triumphant reign, which is what Psalm 68 was about just before this one, God's triumphant reign comes through the suffering of his innocent king. You can't bypass the unjust suffering of King Jesus. Often those from a Muslim or Jewish background find it very hard to believe that God's chosen prophet or God's chosen Messiah could ever be found on a cross. Psalm 69 says that's exactly where you find God's chosen king. So that's the first kind of implication. Be in no doubt, God's triumphant reign comes through the suffering of the king. If there's anything in any of us that, is wobbling a bit about the real gospel. And to be honest, in church plants, there's always a pressure to drift to a softer message that doesn't include talking about the cross. Because we will suffer reputationally if we keep talking about it. Well, if we're wobbling, let God's long-distance preparation for it in Psalm 69 strengthen our foundations. This is where you find God's king. What if you're not wobbling on the gospel, but you're just a bit weary? So yeah, this is the only gospel there is, but what if you got a bit stale? You kind of lost a sense of wonder at at how extraordinary the work of Christ on our behalf is. If that is you, I think it's very easy to be in that place. I think meditating on the experience of the king in Psalm 69 is is really helpful. This is how it felt for Jesus to go to the cross. He knew what was coming. He knew Psalm 69. He still chose voluntarily to step into this on our behalf. Let that warm your heart to our Savior. Second line of application God's saving faithfulness to us is proven in the vindication of his king. I've said a bit about this already, but I don't know if you ever worry if you're backing the wrong worldview. Do you ever look sideways? I think it's easier, more and more easier to do as we go on in life. You kind of compare yourself to others who are not living for Jesus and his kingdom above all. Especially around Collington, I guess that's easy to do. Wouldn't life be easier on the other side of the fence. Now, one of the things that can really reinforce that kind of weariness is if there's a doubt at the back of our mind whether God is really going to come through on his promises. Is he actually going to save me from the grave, raise me up to a new creation, rescue me from all the pain and strain of this world? It sounds like such a big ask well, Psalm 69 says, watch and learn from the king. He was as deep as you could go in suffering, in opposition and ridicule. And it turns out those who put their trust in the Lord will be saved. His resurrection proves that ours is coming. That's our second line. And finally, very briefly, um, this uh, this psalm sets a model, a pattern for us to follow. I mentioned John 15, where where Jesus himself quotes from this psalm. Let me just read a couple of lines from that again. If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. But the word that's written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause." We have one child at primary school and one child at nursery. You may have seen one of them wriggling earlier. (laughs) In both contexts, we've begun to experience the range of reactions that come if we mention Jesus. In fact, we've had some folk who came with us to church events, heard something of the gospel, and having been really friendly before that, now are less keen to chat with us. It may just be in our heads. Uh, I think it's not. Now, a cold shoulder at the school gate is far, far short of the opposition that Psalm 69 is talking about. But it genuinely helps me to remember that King Jesus knows, he knows how painful it is to be disliked or opposed when you're trying to love people. He knows it more deeply than we ever will. And he sets us a model to follow until he returns to lift us up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example so that we might follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Father, we thank you so much for preparing us for the cross of Jesus Christ. We know we need it to pay for our sins. We pray you'd help us to trust it, your pattern for life now, as we wait to be vindicated as your king was. Please help us in all the small steps of our lives, to keep serving you, even if opposition comes. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.